0: The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is the Word of God, and may God, by His Spirit, open our hearts and our ears to hear His Word and obey it. I invite you to pray with me that He would do just that for us today. Father, we pray for Your work to be done through Your Word today. I pray that this would surpass any intellectual exercise, that it would surpass any oratory exercise, tickling of the ears or entertainment. But I pray that by Your Spirit You would speak truth to our hearts. I pray where encouragement is needed that that would be what You would give us from Your Word. Where challenge and rebuke is needed in face of our sin that You would give us that as well. We pray that Jesus would be lifted up, that his name would be glorified, and that we would see more of your great work of redemption through this passage of the law. I pray that you would, uh, we would understand better how this law applied to the people of Israel and then what you call us to as your new covenant people with changed hearts because of Christ. I pray for anyone here who is listening to this that is yet outside of Christ, that still has divine wrath directed toward them because they are not yet under the blood. I pray that this would be a a sobering, reminder to them that you are a holy God with just demands on the people you have created. I pray that we would approach this text and your word always with reverence and fear. Thank you for the God that you are. I pray that you would be glorified greatly through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Getting to know you was the song that Joseph referenced last week when introducing God's law to his people. And I thought that was great. Well, I might not be as openly enthusiastic about musicals as he is, or it sounds like he is, I really want us to see this continuation of the law in the same light. It's a way that God is making known his character to his people. Many scholars call this section of God's law to Moses and to Israel the covenant code, or the book of the covenant. And the reason they do that is because in Exodus chapter 24, just a, a few chapters later we'll cover in a couple of weeks, we see that Moses actually read what is referred to as the book of the covenant to the people right before it is ratified and affirmed by the people. And most scholars believe that this section, including the part that we're looking at this week in chapters 21 into chapter 22 and and also chapter 23 that this is probably the section of of covenant code that is being referred to as the book of the covenant the entire bible is a book of divine self-disclosure and that's a shorthand way of saying that in the bible we get to know the living god only because of what he chooses to tell us about himself let me say that again divine self-disclosure means In the Bible, we get to know the living God based on what he chooses to tell us about himself, what he likes, what he can't stand, how he relates with his people, how his people should relate with one another. And I thought maybe a way we could try to think about this is is maybe more on the human level. Try to think of someone in your life that you wish you could get to know better. But this individual, for whatever reason, just doesn't seem to want to open up to you. Maybe they're not ready to open up yet, but they don't communicate how they really feel about things. They don't really tell you what they like or dislike. And they're very guarded about sharing personal information about themselves. Can you think of someone like that? It's difficult to have a meaningful relationship with someone in this type of situation because you're not receiving real information about them. You're not getting that self-disclosure. But because of divine revelation, both in creation, but even more in special revelation through the Word of God, we should be very thankful that God isn't at all like that. He tells us, infinite God tells finite man what we need to know about Him, to be related to Him. He tells us everything we need to know about Him. In his Word, some of it through poetry or song, some of it through historical example of how he's worked with people in the past, some through historical example, some through letters to churches, some through direct promises to us. And some even through recollection of his laws. So even from a set of laws that aren't written to us like this section, reading about his story of working with his people helps us to better know our God. So if you have a bulletin, you're welcome to follow along or make notes there using the outline in the back. Or feel free to jot down, I just have two, hopefully, simple and direct points as we hear from God today. The points will illustrate a pattern that we'll see more of in Exodus, and actually in other places of Scripture as well. God first will provide instructions or requirements that govern his worship. And then guidance on their social responsibility, how they're to relate with each other as the covenant people of God. So it starts with worship. It starts with a a vertical relationship with our Creator and Redeemer. And then the uniqueness of our relationships with each other horizontally is also described in great detail. And he's accounting here also for the fallen state of man, for the broken world that we live in when he provides these practical outworkings of the Ten Commandments in daily life. So the two points, God instructs his people's worship and God guides his people's relationships. God instructs his people's worship. We'll see that in the latter part of chapter 20 that we just read. And then God guides his people's relationships will be the beginning of chapter 21 through 22, 17. And obviously this is a lot of ground. I won't be reading every single verse, but we'll be diving in regularly and looking at specific texts and and talking about the major themes that are coming out of this. So let's start with that first point. God instructs his people's worship. First of all, I want us to see that this is something that's declared, and God even points this out in verse number 22. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Something has happened that I don't want us to overlook and God doesn't want the people to overlook because he introduces this next section with a reminder of from where the law is coming. Although this is often called the Mosaic Law or the Law of Moses, it wasn't Moses That provided the law he was not the original source. He was a go-between to receive the law from God and deliver it to the people But the entire nation of Israel had seen that it was God himself speaking to them from heaven This is no man contrived law But the heart of God for the people he loves Showing them how to live out this new identity as his covenant people Now that understanding of the law has important echoes for the instruction that comes right after it. And the reason I say that is because God has the first word for how he's to be worshipped. And he lays it out for Israel here as part of their response to his covenant. And let's walk through the aspects of worship he commands and encourages from his people. First of all, he commands that it's an exclusive worship. His instruction is that there are no rivals to his worship. These next Words are basically reiterating the first and second commandments where God prohibited having other gods or even having representations of the true God that they would fashion out of silver or gold. And here he says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me or set up something beside me that could become a rival in your hearts. This is a worship issue not to put something else in addition to Yahweh and create a rivalry. The exclusive nature of God's worship highlights here his jealousy for the hearts of his people. It's a beautiful jealousy because it's what secures our salvation, that he is jealous for us. He does not want us running after other things that will not satisfy, but will only condemn. Instead, he is jealous for our affections and for our worship. So first of all, this worship is told to be exclusive. Second, it's described as being very simple. An altar of earth you shall make for me. So this is basically a dirt, a mound of dirt on the ground. Or if they choose to, they're also allowed to use a pile of uncut stones, something that hasn't had any kind of a tool chiseling away yet. And there may be a correlation between what God just condemned about making altars and what he commands in the very next verse, because it it seems that what idols are to pagans, they're a symbol of the presence of their deity. Altars are to be similar to Israel. Because several stacked stones or a simple mound of dirt, humbly presented where sacrifices are offered, can become a place where God is both remembered and worshipped. And this command is addressed to all of Israel, not just to the soon-to-be office of priests. God is saying, if you come and you present offering sacrifice to me on these simple altars, that is where I will come and meet with you and bless you. There's a dignity, a purity, a separation from the pagan worship that would have had um, more elaborate decorations. Instead, the rules about not using any tools seem to be... Don't make my worship like the other nations around. Don't build steps to this high up altar. But this is what I command, that my name not be profaned. And then I love here the relational aspect of the worship that God is encouraging. The key to the worship described here is that the places where God makes his name to be remembered rightly, it is there that his presence and his blessing will come. This reminds us again that God set up standards that we refer to as the law. They were always intended to promote relational fellowship with his people. The law was not the entrance to the covenant, but being in covenant, this is how they were to live before God. And a promise to cling to here was that in these simple places of worship, this is where God would come down and would meet them with his blessing. Is there any greater promise than the presence of God? So let's think about how these commands, which are directed to Israel in their context, we are not commanded to similarly build mounds of dirt in our backyards and on them to sacrifice animals. Not only would that get us in trouble with our homeowners association, I'm sure, but This is not what God is commanding. This was a specific command for a specific people in a specific context. But when God tells Israel this is how they are to worship him and gives them words to describe what the worship is to look like and that through this they can be assured of his presence and his blessing, I believe he is telling us something. And here are a couple of takeaway applications that I'd like us to consider. First of all, we don't just get to choose how God is worshipped according to our feelings or our preferences. I believe that Scripture does give some degree of, of leeway. It's not very it's not in the New Testament as strictly defined, but I believe that our worship is dictated and defined by the Word of God. That's going to make it different from Israel under the old covenant but it's also going to make it different from how we, or how we see the world around us worshiping their idols. There is a distinctiveness that God calls us to as his people. The second thing I want us to consider is how God's presence and his blessing are made available not through sacrifices of animals on mounds of dirt or piles of stone, but God's presence and blessing are available to us Today, because of one single sacrifice of his sinless son. Christ is the way that God's presence and blessing are mediated for us, his people, today. But there is in Scripture an ongoing sacrifice that we as Christians are called to. Romans 12 is key here. Our ongoing sacrifice of worship doesn't involve a place. It doesn't involve an outward practice or ritual but the giving of our entire lives to our God who has redeemed us. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our Christian worship, though it includes these things, is not specifically a time of singing that we do when we get together. It's not even everything that happens when we get gathered here on Sunday, but it's everything that we are, everything we live for. This is our spiritual worship, according to Paul there in Romans 12. I think that's important for us as God establishes His pattern for His covenant people and how they're to worship Him as a foundation for the laws of how they're to relate with each other that we see as foundational our own worship of an eternal and sovereign God. But second, and this is going to cover a much longer part of the passage, so don't get too eager when you look at the clock and see that I'm already on my last point. God guides his people's relationships. You know me too well. Now these, in chapter 21, verse number 1, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. The word translated rules could also be guiding decisions. These are the guiding decisions that you shall set before them. God is leading his people into a fuller understanding of what obedience to the Ten Commandments is going to look like. And it's normal, actually, it's good to have questions in reading this. Some possible questions might be, what am I supposed to do with these verses? Or, why is this passage here? Or, are these commands still in force for Christians today? I hope to be able to answer these questions as we go, but fundamentally, these guiding decisions, it's important to lay this out as groundwork, are not here for us to obey. When we read these rules, I want to be clear to say these were given to God's chosen people of Israel in their specific setting. And they're also uniquely set within a historical narrative context from which much of their significance comes. That God, having just mightily delivered his people from a wicked world power, having then graciously led and provided for them during recent months in the wilderness, now has compassionately offered a covenant with them which will be sealed and ratified shortly. And both this setting of the law and its divine author are unique among any ancient law book that this might be attempted to compare to. This is a unique passage of, of divine law for his people of that day. So if these are, are guiding decisions, I think it's helpful to understand a little bit more about what that means. So I find it helpful to think of this as inspired case law for Israel. My older brother went to law school at the University of North Carolina. Since I was across town at another um, university, um, no comments. I remember a little bit of what he studied because we lived nearby at the time. He's now on the East Coast, now I'm on the West Coast. We don't see each other as much, but much of the study of law, and this is from an outsider's perspective, so I may not be giving this, you know, giving this full value, but much of it has to do with learning the outcome of key cases, of pivotal cases that happened in the past, and you study that as case law. And these establish then a pattern for how the law is to be interpreted and used in new cases that come along. If you know prior cases and how the judges have decided, you get to see a pattern for how the upcoming cases, which are going to be different, they're going to have variations and in the occurrences that happened, but it gives you some idea of how the law is to be used. And that appears to be what we have here. It appears that this is a series of if something happens or when something happens, this is the outcome that should follow. It's divine case law. Ligon Duncan, in preaching on this text, said this. This word, the word rules, probably indicates case law decisions that rest on prior precedents. In other words, we're given a, I'm going to use a word that doesn't mean much to us, casuistry here, not a word we use a whole lot. It's not a comprehensive legal code that basically means cause and effect. It's a descriptive legal code. It gives us examples of ways in which the spirit of the principles of the Ten Commandments can be applied here in specific cultural settings. So I want us to pay attention to a few things as we start to look at these these chapters through these guiding decisions or case laws of ancient Israel, first of all, one thing I want us to notice is that God is interested in the small details of our lives. Things like the equivalent of having a donkey fall into an open pit you just dug in your sidewalk. Now, we probably don't have donkeys walking around our sidewalks, but these small details of life If you accidentally start fire to your neighbor's lawn, it describes what's supposed to happen in that setting. So these are things that you might say, this isn't very spiritual. This seems very like civil court kind of thing. And it exactly is. And God is saying, I'm concerned with this level of detail, with how my people respond and live in community with each other. The second thing I want us to pay attention to is that our own fallenness, and we see that just in the examples given here, there's some, there's some bad stuff described in these case laws. But that our own fallenness combined with the broken world we live in will result in interpersonal conflict. I don't think you can live on this planet, even if you're a hermit and try to seclude yourself from other people. I don't think you can live without some type conflict with other people someone that rubs you the wrong way or you'll even accidentally do damage to someone else's property and you'll need to get that taken care of and made right and not all of that is necessarily your fault but it still does need to be resolved so we see that this interpersonal conflict happens and God wants his covenant people to work to resolve those the third thing I want us to know to even going into this section is some laws were given because of the hardness of man's heart and not necessarily as a reflection of God's heart on a matter. And one of the, the key texts I use for that is in Mark 10 where Christ is talking to the Pharisees in Mark 10. And I'll read starting in verse 2, the Pharisees came up in order to test him. And said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And while this isn't a message, and perhaps this text doesn't even directly address the topic of divorce, I think it's important that we understand that God did give some commands to express and to compensate for and to account for the hardness of man's heart. Jesus said there, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. This this was not God's desire for them, but it was because he knew the sinfulness and the hardness of man's hearts. So I want us to keep that in mind even as we read some of today's case law. And then fourth and finally, before we jump in, we need more than a system of laws to maintain healthy community. We need more than a set of guidelines that say if this happens, then do this. And if this happens, then do this. That's not going to maintain very long healthy community between other people. But we need a changed heart to love like Christ loves. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there's the command, there's the the words of Christ encouraging that kind of a a love. But how do we do that? Well, we start by being consumed by the love that Christ demonstrated. Paul says this so, so well, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He He ends that explanation by saying, if anyone is in Christ, therefore, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Speaking of the new heart that makes this kind of love possible. And then we continue in this type of love that's described, this Living out the law of love, we continue by the indwelling Spirit, which trumps the defeat of law-bound living. And I say the defeat of law-bound living because of Galatians 5, and I believe Joseph read this passage to us last week, but I think it's appropriate to come back to it. We must continue as God's new covenant people to be led by the Spirit. For you were called to freedom, brothers, Galatians 5.13. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see that that contrast that Paul is, is setting there. We are not under this old covenant Mosaic law that we'll read about today, but we have a greater law the law of love, to love the unlovely, to love our neighbors, even to love our enemies. So today with those overarching principles, we have three main sections of case law starting in chapter 21. The first one covers case law regarding slaves and the handling of slaves. That covers chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. The second is personal injury, cases of someone Killing or hurting someone else. That covers chapter 21, 12 through 32. And then finally, we'll come to property damage. in Chapter 21, 33 to chapter 22, verse 17. We'll take these one at a time. I encourage you to keep your Bible open to the section. Let's look at this first set of guiding decisions involving justice for slaves. Let's start by reading this portion of the text. Exodus 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And that's not even the entire passage about slaves, but we're going to stop there briefly. Looking back through the travesty of modern day slavery, So even just looking at the modern era, this passage, I recognize, is hard for our ears. I think that's good. I think it's good that hearing and reading about slavery is difficult for us. But we should still understand what it's saying. God is setting here for Israel, themselves just having been held and abused as slaves in Egypt, and probably Israel was also aware of the harshness and cruelty that was permitted by their neighbors and their slave trades, God is setting for Israel, I believe, a higher standard in a culture that would have still condoned this practice of slavery. And this new standard actually affirmed the personhood of what's referred to here as Hebrew slaves, that they're to be freed after seven years, that they're to be protected in their bonds of marriage, Etc., in a way that I think this new standard that affirmed the personhood, I think this actually gives us some hope that the passage may not be as uncomfortable as it was when we first started reading it. Now, that's my, my understanding, my belief of this, but one view that I found helpful is that God, by the very language he uses in his laws about slavery, is actually discouraging Israel from practicing it. By some of the language he uses, even in that first verse there, when you buy a Hebrew slave, the words he chose for Hebrew slave weren't what you'd think of that an Israelite would write about a fellow Israelite. They would have written when you buy an Israelite slave. But in using the term Hebrew slave, it's actually using the same words that an Egyptian master would have used of their Hebrew slave. So it it colors, it stigmatizes the language a little bit of someone who would want to even buy themselves a slave. The original Hebrew words here are not complimentary at all. In fact, they're derogatory. Also, based on some of the descriptions, this may likely describe something more like an indentured servant, someone who was in severe debt or was trying to get out of extreme poverty would say for a period of time I'm going to give all of my resources all of my time to this master knowing that after seven years if this was a good master that they would release them of all debts and release them also to live the rest of their lives as a free man. I I think this is supported in a few different ways but one of them is just by looking at the example that this slave here does get to after serving for six years has freedom to go free. That makes him a little less than a full citizen, but much, much more than a slave in that culture. Quoting one commentator who said, at the end of six years, whatever the cause of the servitude, he was to go free without any cost to himself, presumably with the status of full and unencumbered citizenship. And we should know that God took this commanded release in the seventh year very seriously. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 34, we won't turn there for sake of time, but the masters who disobeyed by keeping their slaves beyond the seven years are declared to have profaned God's holy name, are put in breach of God's covenant, and they're said to be punishable by the most severe judgment. So God takes this standard very seriously. And the passage I read also describes a ceremony of allegiance that a slave could swear if they loved and desired to stay with the family of their master. As part of this, they were to take this outward sign of of, um, having their ear pierced during what appears to be a public ceremony, where they vow that they will stay with this master for the rest of their lives. And in this profession of allegiance, it's actually interesting to note we read a little bit of Israel When they were earlier complaining about their struggle in the wilderness and saying, we want to go back to Egyptian slavery, I love my Egyptian slavery better than I love freedom out here in the wilderness, that's actually similar language to where it says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Because pledging one's allegiance to a life of slavery was not something that God himself was even encouraging here. He was just giving this option, a decision entirely left to the slave not the master and giving some protection to a slave we won't go into all the other applications of slavery I think that would bog us down but this principle of God protecting against unjust masters is going to continue through the rest as well so the question I want to ask and the question I hope you're already asking is what to do with this how how do we apply this Well, what we've just seen is what protection from unjust masters meant to Israel in their context. As Christians, we are not under the law, but under a higher law, the law of love. So for us today, church, I want to start by categorically denouncing slavery in all its forms, because slavery does still exist today in the most horrible and despicable forms that make us cry out for humanity I think you would join me in the belief that every image bearer has personal dignity and value. That's every human has has value, not as property, but as people. I believe God calls us also as his redeemed people who were ourselves bought out of sin's bondage by the blood of Christ to respond by taking a stand for justice in our day perhaps even to work some of us as modern-day Wilberforces to end all instances of slavery that we can. We look at Scripture, we hear the heart of God for justice toward the oppressed. Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. In Isaiah 1, verse 17, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And speaking for myself, I don't know exactly what this is supposed to look like. I don't even know where it's supposed to fall on my priority spectrum. But there are enough scriptural calls to promote justice that I don't want to miss an opportunity to follow Christ there. Maybe this is an area for us as a church to be praying setting this text before us today. There's a second category of guiding decisions in this case law that has to do with personal injury. And in the personal injury section, I see an overarching theme of protection from vengeful retaliation. Protection from vengeful retaliation. Let's look at our text in Exodus 21, starting in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning... You shall take him from my altar, which would have been a place of of temporary protection, that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. One key principle from this text is that all human life is sacred in the eyes of God. And that our legal responses as a, as a community should reflect this truth. Ultimately, this is rooted in God's creation of mankind. And exclusively mankind in his image. The initial argument is actually made all the way back in Genesis 9. Right after the flood. And in this text, murder, the taking of human life, is contrasted with fruitful multiplying that God desires for his people. So God here sets up four capital crimes. Premeditated murder, striking of parents, kidnapping... And cursing or repudiation of one's parents. But even in describing these capital crimes, there are messages of mercy. There's a, an allusion to something that's going to come later called a city of refuge. If you killed someone accidentally, basically manslaughter, there were cities that you were allowed to flee to where you weren't, um, where you were not to be killed. There's also a long list of actions in these verses and the following ones, where some physical harm is caused that requires payment or retribution of lost time or freedom of a slave or death of a dangerous ox that has gored a human. So there's establishing here this pattern of the sanctity of life. Life, human life in all its forms, is sacred in the eyes of God. And so should be too in the eyes of his people. And there's another significant portion that's mentioned here and actually gets repeated other places in Scripture. So let's, let's read about this starting in verse 22. Still in Exodus 21, verse 22. When men strive together, so men are fighting each other, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. He shall pay as the judges determine, but if there is harm, then you shall pay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now this section contains what scholars call the Lex Talionis. I'm sure for Latin scholars that was bad pronunciation, but Lex Talionis. Now, I initially read that, and I thought, law of the talon, because that sounds good. And even someone I was reading at the time actually referred to it as law of the talon. But Joseph was kind enough to point out that it actually is law of retaliation. Talionis is the same root word from retaliation. So this is what scholars call it, but we can just call it the law of retaliation. Most of us probably know it better as an eye for an eye. This principle actually shows up three times in the Old Testament, here in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Numbers. And then we're probably most familiar because Christ actually talks about it in his Sermon on the Mount. And its purpose, this is key, its purpose was to actually put a limit on how much retribution you could do in case of a personal injury. This was leveling the playing field for everyone involved in a court case. So a rich person, for example, couldn't make a poor beggar Pay extra in cases where an injury was caused if a if a poor person you know tore the fingernail off a rich person, they could not cut off their hand in response it 's a leveling of the playing field an eye was worth an eye, no matter whose eye it was and the case here the example here is actually the event of a pregnant woman and it, it obviously tragic to even think of, but being struck during a careless street brawl such that the child or maybe even children are prematurely born, an injury or possibly death occurs for either the child or the mother. And while not the only text we could use to establish the personhood of an unborn child, this is at a bare minimum saying that this personal injury to a child has the same value, even if though they were unborn, has the same value as any other person. But as for the application of this law of retaliation, this is where we really start to wonder, you know, if someone lost an eye, did the person who caused that actually get their eye gouged out? I mean, that would be tragic. Now you have two people walking around without eyes. Um, And we don't really know. It's possible this was carried out actually literally sometimes, Tooth for a tooth, so you get in a fight and someone's tooth gets knocked out and the other person has a tooth, also gets taken out. Or it's possible, I don't feel like I can be real strong on this, but it's possible that it defined the proper monetary payment for injuries. That some injuries being more serious would have more monetary retribution toward the offender. But ultimately, whichever case it is, this application is about equality. And this equality in sentencing is foundational towards some modern legal ideas, things like equal justice under law. No one, the punishment must fit the crime. This is kind of in our modern verbiage, but it's the same concept that comes from this law of retaliation, that there's a fairness and there's equality in the justice system, or there should be. But Christ actually expands on this. And when he does it, he's correcting a bad interpretation that the Pharisees have made. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 38, feel free to turn there, but I'm going to read these five verses. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he's referring to this law, or at least the Pharisees' understanding of this law and their application of it. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So rather than using this law to protect the offender, it seems that the Pharisees may have been using it to exact payment. And though we see vengeful retaliation playing all the way back to Genesis when Cain feared for his life after killing Abel and said, someone is going to find me and kill me, retaliation is never part of the Christian law of love. Let me repeat that. Even though we see vengeful retaliation playing out throughout ancient history, retaliation is never part of the Christian law of love. Leveling the playing field if not done by our justice system, is supposed to be left to God to resolve. Hebrews 10.30 confirms this principle where we read, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here Jesus is establishing an even greater repayment system where good is returned when evil is given, where the offender receives a blessing by the offended rather than being cursed. So applying to us, what we've just seen is what protection from retaliation meant to Israel in their context. But as Christians, we're not under that law. We are under a higher law, the law of love. So for us today, church, let's consider what we're called to do when someone commits a sin against us. Is our first thought to find a way to get even, to even the score? Or is it to return a blessing for cursing. And this change, I've already said it earlier in the message, this change is only possible through a new heart. When we realize that this, this anti-retaliation concept, this repayment of good, is all that we have received for the sins that we've done against Christ. When we're controlled by the love we've received and keep receiving from Christ, then we're empowered to stop living for ourselves and are freed to die to our own self-interest and our perceived rights. So as we live out our calling, brothers and sisters, to be a light to the earth, to carry the good news of Christ's kingdom as His ambassadors, may His love for us be our center. May His love ground us. Be the road that we drive on. May it be the GPS that guides our response. May it be the gas in our tank to keep us moving for his glory. So we're in a third section now. And obviously I'm not reading every verse or covering every single one of the cases that are given. But I pray that these higher level views are helpful for us as God's people. And the third section covers property damage. And when property is damaged, the overall concept that the law is communicating is that full restitution should be given. The entire section covers how property loss is to be repaid, whether it was caused by cattle rustling, whether it was caused by accidentally setting your neighbor's field on fire. And this covers cases of ox, oxen goring people, animals falling into uncovered pits. So these are not primarily humans being harmed, but animals or property. Here's part of the text that I think will establish this this concept for us. Exodus 22, starting in verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Jumping to verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. This word restitution is used seven times in this section of verses. Repay is used six times. Restoration or restore is used once. These words basically mean to establish again. In order to avoid additional conflict in this covenant community, whenever someone intentionally or even accidentally causes damage to someone else's property, they had a need to pay to make it right. To even pay extra above and beyond what was damaged or taken. To get past the baseline before the offense. And the exact amounts were even provided. Five oxen for one stolen ox. Four sheep for one stolen sheep. I can't help but think that the human heart, though, would look for loopholes in these. Sadly, the tendency can quickly become doing what's needed to clear our name rather than really make it right and restore the relationship. And although the letter of the law might be kept, self-focus can drive even the keeping of commandments like this. But there must be true restitution, right? Something that comes from the heart. And I love how some New Testament texts really bring out this principle of restitution. We're not going to go through them in depth, but the first one that jumped in my mind was the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus, if you recall, spent a lot of time around sinful people, and especially sinful people in the eyes of the religious community. And tax collectors were near the top of that list. He would hang out with these people that were unpopular in his day. And Zacchaeus was this wealthy and despised tax collector that went to see Jesus when he passed through Jericho. And in Luke 19, I just want to focus on Zacchaeus' response after Jesus calls him down and invites himself over for dinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord! The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Rather than going to the law book and counting out legally how much he had to pay back that he had stolen, this repentant heart of Zacchaeus wanted to make things right, even if it hurt him personally. So, He wanted to give fourfold to the people he had hurt, and he also wanted to give half of everything he had to pour on top of that. This is the full and the free restitution that is brought about by true heart repentance. So thinking a little bit more about our application, what we've just seen is what full restitution for damaged property meant to Israel in their context. But as Christians, I sound like a broken record now, we are not under this law. We're under a higher law, the law of love. So for us today, church, I want us to imagine what restitution looks like for our community. If someone we know is wronged, even if we aren't the responsible party, what would loving our neighbors look like? Even if we didn't cause it accidentally or on purpose, in the New Testament we don't have time to dig into it and in fact i'm just going to mention it we have the story of the good samaritan and i want to encourage community groups and individuals to read luke 10 25 to 37 together and then seek the application of christian re- christian restitution for us is this passage talking about this neighbor this unloved neighbor of the Israel, the Samaritan, highlights the extent to which true love goes in its selflessness. The Samaritan, remember, didn't cause the damage, but he goes above and beyond and even uses words like repay. He's repaying something he didn't need to repay. Could the Christian application of restitution mean repaying offenses we didn't even create? I'd like us to pray and talk about application of that this week. So I think the good Samaritan is a great place to start in Luke 10. So in a message explaining the covenant code in Exodus, I think it's actually fitting that we come now to the Lord's table. Might seem like a strange statement, so let me explain. The law was never ever provided as a way to work to God by our own efforts. Romans 3 reminds us of this. Starting in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been brought into the light, made made visible apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets did bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Romans 3 is speaking of a righteousness from God that we need apart from the law. Something that the Old Testament pointed towards. So I want to remind us that None of us can ever be saved from the judgment our sin deserves apart from Christ and the work that Jesus did on the cross. It was his sacrifice of broken body and shed blood that we remember by way of these symbols at the table. And by faith in him, we can be confident that God justifies us on the basis of Christ's perfect law keeping, not our imperfect attempts at it. Those are the types of people we invite to the table here at Grace and Truth. Those who have come to Christ and Christ alone in faith and repentance. But we also need regular reminders that it's Jesus' grace that we need for living out this higher law of love. Not in any way to merit our sonship to the Father, but as a way we can demonstrate that we are sons of the Father. So if only perfect Christians should should take the elements today, I think we would all need to stay seated. That's not what this is about. But if our heart is to follow Christ in dependence on him, if our heart is to maintain relationships of love with one another, then we invite you to join us if you are one who has followed Christ in faith. And I'll pray and encourage you to pray with me to to bear our hearts before God, seeking His gracious work where needed. And then as the singing starts, you can just form a line and come here and rejoice in Christ's work as we remember it together. So I invite anyone from the song team that needs to come up and the servers, and I will pray. And then we will celebrate the elements together. May God bless us. Dear Father, I recognize this may have been a a heavy message covering case law in an Old Testament, Old Covenant setting. But I pray that by Your Spirit You would be working its truth in our hearts. That we would see How incapable we are of keeping any law, and how Christ kept every law for us, and then went to a cross, despised by men that He actually had come to save. Thank you for the work of our Savior and the privilege we have of remembering that as we gather today. I pray that we would remember that that shed blood of Jesus accomplished our atonement and washes us clean. That that broken body was for us because Jesus loves us. Pray that your work by your Spirit would continue to be done as we celebrate this table together. As we reflect on what you would have us to do and how you would have us respond to your word today. May you receive the glory in Jesus' name.